Hello to all my fellow one-on-one history podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good weekend. Uh, hard to believe that um, we have uh, finished Monday, uh, that we're at the start of a, another work week, or just for another uh, new week in general as it is. Um, hard to believe tomorrow will mark a full week since Election Day uh, took place in the United States. But I do feel good knowing that uh, over the weekend that... Um, a new president had been um, officially declared in this country. Of course, the objective is not to ha- get into an intense uh, political discussion or let alone politics in general, because as many people will say, the, the worst that the two worst things one can talk about, if they're not careful, is religion and politics. Uh, but it is good to know that we have a new um, person coming in uh, who will be our 46th president of the United States. And I wish him all the best. I have no doubts that he will do a great job. Uh, But then again, he's an experienced uh, congressman who has, um, you know, served his country very well. And this ought to be a time where um, party differences or political ideologies, for that matter, should be put aside for the benefit, uh, not only just for those who live in the United States, but even uh, for the rest of the world as a whole, because... um, when ideologies and um, political differences get in the way, it does tend to uh, make people do things that are unbecoming, and it does tend to make them um, get, it, it makes them just um, unstable, if that's the better word to, to uh, describe it. But I will tell you this, back in 1770, during those, um, during the time that the Boston Massacre took place, as well as the Boston Massacre Trials, John Adams made a very, very um, important uh, statement that does resonate even in today's modern world. None of us, um, all of us rather, I should say, are entitled to our own um, opinions, regardless of subject, regardless of subject that's at stake. But he did make a very unique remark based on the following. Emotions cannot override the facts. In other words, you may not like the outcome of what has happened, and that was especially the case in the aftermath of the Boston Massacre trials when um, when the uh, soldiers, uh, given that uh, six out of the eight soldiers had been found uh, not guilty of uh, manslaughter, while um, two of them were found guilty of um, involuntary um, manslaughter, but the bottom line is, is that while you may not like the outcomes, or let alone the outcome to something, no matter how passionate you are about your belief, or no matter how passionate you may feel about something, emotions cannot override the facts. And that's what um, has come about with this past election, that no matter how people felt about The candidates, the bottom line is a candidate won, and that's just what it is, and the emotions cannot override the facts. So here we are moving on to um, the next segment of Founding Rivals, Madison versus Monroe, uh, the Bill of Rights and the election that saved the nation. We're going to be discussing tonight about the um, Virginia Convention, or let alone the Virginia Ratification Convention. The next podcast, we will talk about the second half of this uh, convention, 
but we are going to start with the first part of it. So, I probably have already given you all an answer, but I'm going to ask this question anyways. What is significant about June the 2nd of 1788? So here, here we are nine months after the 39 men who signed the Constitution um, signed that document back on September 17th of 1787. But what is significant about June 2nd, 1788, is that it's the date for which the Virginia Ratification Convention officially begins its proceedings to debate the Constitution um, as a document. In other words, to debate whether... To, to to debate in the sense of um, supporting this document versus those who oppose it. But the ultimate objective, in my mind, if I was a delegate, would be to support its ratification so that it will become our nation's legally official, legally official binding document. Remember, folks, it's one thing for the signers to have signed the document, but now you've got to take it before your own state to win approval from the state level. So you think about it. it it's really like a marriage of sorts. You know, it, it's tough work. It's not uh, supposed to be easy. And yes, the challenge in this case, it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an uphill battle. But in the end... We're going to find out that uh, a lot of good is going to come out, but it's going to take some um, it's going to take some painstaking measures. So, who's going to charter this? Uh, who's going to chair this convention? I should say, <laughs> charter isn't the right word, <laughs> but the person who's going to be chairing this convention is Mr. Edmund Pendleton. Now, um, during his introduction speech. He made it clear that all the delegates present work together without resorting to bitterness, anger, finger-pointing, to partisanship. He wanted delegates to be civil and polite towards one another without resorting to unnecessary drama. So in other words, this is easier said than done, but I think a good example here would be to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. Do you think that all of the delegates, though, are going to exemplify that motto? I would like to say yes, but in rereading um, what I uh, planned for for tonight's podcast, I found that one man in particular does not fit that motto in terms of learning how to disagree without being disagreeable. It's going to come as a shocker. But you know what? What I have found in in doing this um, book review with you all is that history has shown, not just with this event, but I think with uh, other famous events, is that political actions or political events, or let alone I should say historical events, have not always united everyone together. History has shown that many events have actually divided families. Not to get ahead of the game here, but if we go fast forward to the mid-19th century, the United States Civil War, that tore families apart, not just from the South and from the North, but as a whole. Um, You know, we take the American Revolution. Just because 
someone in the household was a patriot, it didn't mean that everybody else was. There were plenty of families, uh, whether you were in the northern colonies, the middle or the southern colonies, there were plenty of families that were bitter, bitterly divided to where uh, family members were ostracized. In other words, they were um, banished from from having from not being allowed to ha have any part of the, of their family as a whole. Uh, we've seen in uh, Europe, for example, religious warfare and how people were uh, family members were ostracized in some instances for not even adhering to the Catholic Church. These things uh, do happen. It doesn't make it right, but it is fair to say that. Um, when when we tend to think of big monumental achievements like the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution, I hate to say this, uh, but not everybody is always 100% unified, not just from within a legislative body, but even uh, from, uh, from, say, well-to-do um, political family uh, dynasties. So basically, it's a double-edged sword. Of course, double-edged swords can be good, but they can also be for the worse. So, uh, one of my other uh, questions before you all is this. The convention was to have uh, actually, not a question, but rather a piece of information, that the uh, convention itself was to have been um, at the state capitol building, but due to the large number of delegates and spectators present, it was held instead at the new Academy building on Shaco Hill. It turns out that at this time, the new Academy building was the premier uh, theater in Richmond, Virginia, for where all the uh, big plays were held. Now, many of you all are also wondering, too, how many delegates in total actually attended the ratification convention for Virginia? I'll give you a number. It's well above 100, but the number I'm looking at is between 140 and 170. Any of you all want to take a guess? The answer is 168. Well, we have to remember this too, folks. Virginia is the largest of the 13 states, so that means we have delegates who are coming west from the fall line. Uh, we have delegates probably coming as far away as... Uh, Winchester, Virginia, Stanton, and they are coming as far away as present-day West Virginia. So the bottom line is, folks, Virginia's got a lot of ground and a lot of voices, a lot of different um, opinions on this document. That's good for diversity, but we also have to wonder, hey, is the major or the majority of delegates... Are they going to be in support of this? Are they going to be in opposition? Or are we going to have a fair number of them who are who remain neutral until the very end to where their votes could make or break Virginia's case for um, whether or not she's going to ratify this um, revolutionary document that is whose intention is to become the official legal binding document that um, represents not just the national government itself, but has supreme authority over the states. So, the total number of supporters and opponents appears to be um, even despite a fair number of wild cards, those whom have not yet decided on how they would vote. So, out of 168, I mean, it. you could have, for all we know, folks, you could have... Um, 
40 to 45% in favor, and you could have 40 to 45% opposed, that, let's say it's 45% on each side, that leaves 10% right there um, unsure as to how they're going to vote. So therefore, that 10% right there, for example, could be the deciding make it or break it factor. So here's our next bonus question to you all. What strategical approach did George Mason support for debating the Constitution? I found this approach to be interesting, but it, it's, um, it's a good choice. It's called the clause-by-clause -clause review. It's a procedure that would allow delegates to review the document on a section-by-section -section approach. In other words, focus on one component at a time without rushing to quick conclusions, or let alone judgment. In other words, let's not rush to a quick vote or immediate vote and say, oh, we don't like the document, so heck with it. No, by reviewing the, the Constitution clause by clause, you can actually go through each uh, sections, given that there are seven um, articles, and you can go through it one by one and say, okay, this is what I like about the uh, Article 1, but on the other hand, I'm not sure about certain provisions to this um, particular article or section. So this is a good way of getting your facts straight and knowing, okay, what's doable, what could be re-amended, uh, rather than rushing to judgment and say, oh, I don't like it altogether. Now, it turns out that James Madison would support George, Mason, George Mason's clause-by-clause -clause strategical approach for document debate. And that's great because, you know, think about it. In 1788, folks, James Madison's 37 years old. He's not even married yet. He's still a bachelor. Um, he's already served um, as a House of Delegate representative to his um, hometown of Orange County. He's also been a um, delegate to um, the Constitutional Convention. He's also served in the Continental Congress, uh, not Continental Congress, but the uh, Confederation Congress in Philadelphia. He was even a member that went um, to the Fifth Virginia Convention that met at the Raleigh Tavern in Williamsburg. I think it's fair to say that James Madison is probably your senior most legal advisor who he's already examined the pros and the cons He's already, in other words, done his homework to know, okay, how the supporters are going to advocate this and how the, the opponents, those in opposition, are going to respond. He's basically your, um, your fact-finder. He's your, he's your guy who's going to um, say, hey, I already know how so-and-so could vote in support of this, but we've got to see how the person on the other end who might be in opposition to this, we, let's see what we can do to persuade him to change his mind. So basically, he's the insider. Which delegate on the morning of June 4th, 1788, would go about causing mischief? All right, well, early on, I told you all that there would be one in particular who is going to make things very um, unpleasant. And I hate to say who this person's going to be, but I, I'm going to mention it to you all. But before I do, maybe I should give you all a couple of, of choices. He's a Virginian. 
Of course, this is the Virginia ratif Virginia's ratification convention, so it would be foolish for me to name an outsider who's not even from Virginia, but uh, who do you think it would be? Could it be Thomas Jefferson? Could it be Patrick Henry? Which of those two do you think it could be? Well, I can already tell you that more than likely it's not Thomas Jefferson, but I can tell you all that, uh, why I think that later, but the an actual answer is Patrick Henry. Well, for starters, he asked to have the Virginia resolutions regarding delegation appointments from Annapolis and Philadelphia be read aloud. Why is he doing this? Is he um, purposely stalling time? Is he purposely trying to get away from the main focal point of the uh, convention's uh, discussion in terms of reviewing the Constitution as a whole body? Perhaps so. Well, this request gets denied by uh, Mr. Edmund Pendleton, the head chairman, thank goodness, because Mr. Pendleton finds it irrelevant. And un those delegates who are undecided are simply not interested in hearing about the readings on old resolutions because they have no significant importance to what's going on in store right now. Whatever happened at the Annapolis Convention two years earlier doesn't have... It, it's, uh, it doesn't mean diddly squat. Well, Patrick Henry was firmly convinced that the, that the people in general were opposed to the Constitution. And so, therefore, he firmly believed his mission was to speak on their behalf. And he went as far as believing that the delegates at Philadelphia deliberately divided the nation's well-being. Now, I don't understand why Patrick Henry thinks this way. Doesn't it kind of remind you of some of how a fair number of politicians are thinking in today's modern world? Um, and, and especially with COVID and, um, and all the other pressing issues that have been um, impacting our nation? Sounds like it. I mean, not to get off track here, but we do have a lot of politicians who, who don't see the value in wearing a face mask. They think it's uh, an insult to our uh, personal freedoms, our well, or our um, every. They see it as a violation of our everyday rights. I don't see it as a violation. I see it as a safety precaution. I I, I want to be safe, but I also don't want to jeopardize other people's safety. But of course, as my father would say, and it's so true, even in today's time, you can't legislate stupidity. But one thing you can do is avoid not making the same mistakes as those around you choose to because of their ignorance. Well, that's where the free will part comes into play. But back to uh, focusing on Patrick Henry here. You know, here he, whenever I think of Patrick Henry, I always think of the famous speech he gave at St. John's Bruton Parish Church um, in Richmond, Virginia. Many of you all have probably heard me talk about the speech, but that speech was so eloquent. I almost think of Patrick Henry as a reasonably sane individual when he made the speech. I almost have wonder now that after the American Revolutionary War ended, that a different Patrick Henry emerged. And by claiming to represent those who were opposed to the Constitution, 
and that his not only was it his mission to speak on their behalf, but to go as far as to saying that the delegates at Philadelphia who were there from May of 1787 all the way to September of that year had purposely divided the nation's well-being. All right, well, Mr. Henry is entitled to his opinions, but I think he is a complete fool for saying that the men who were at Philadelphia were playing with people's well-beings. If, they tru- if he truly thought for one second that they were playing with, their, with the rest of the nation's well-being, then maybe he should have gone to Philadelphia and, and taken a uh, crack at uh, proposing something that was radical. But I will tell you all this. Patrick Henry is stuck in a rut, but he actually likes being stuck in a rut. As a matter of fact, he likes living under a failed way of life. That is the Articles of Confederation. He sees nothing wrong with this, with this fledgling document. He's okay with the states trampling over the federal government or over Congress. He's okay with the states not showing any proper respect or let alone authority. Basically, I, I hate to say this, but uh, Patrick Henry might even be okay with anarchy. So, do you think this will be the last we will hear of Patrick Henry during this convention? Absolutely not. So, are there going to be people who will stand up to Mr. Henry? Yes, but we will get to them here soon. Here's a good bonus question right here. Well, first off, do any of you all remember who Edmund Randolph was? He was the governor of Virginia, and and he was at the Constitutional Convention the year earlier, or the year previously, I should say. Would his vote have a major significance to the convention's outcome, that is, for the Virginia Convention? Yes. For starters, going into June of 1788, for starters... Eight states have already ratified the U.S. Constitution. Do any of you, do any of you all know uh, which eight states have already ratified? I can tell you this much. Three of the eight states ratified at the very end of 1787. The three that did that were Delaware, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Now, for those of you who are listening, have any of you all ever gotten a state quarter with Delaware. If so, do you know why Delaware is called the first state? Because it was the first state to ratify the Constitution. Well, there you have it, folks. Somebody has to be first, and it was Delaware. And then the other five states that joined along were Georgia. I find Georgia interesting because Georgia was the first southern state to ratify the Constitution. Then Massachusetts, Connecticut, Maryland, and South Carolina. These eight states had already ratified the U.S. Constitution to become the nation's legal binding document. But as for Edmund Randolph, given his personal reasons for not signing the Constitution in 1787 in Philadelphia, and the reason why he didn't sign it at that time was because there was no, there weren't any provisions underlining um, the safeguarding of uh, personal liberties, or what would eventually become the Bill of Rights. That was why he didn't sign it. But he's got a change in heart, thank goodness. 
And I'm glad for it because um, it's one thing to be skeptical and, and opposed and to hold out for why you don't want to sign something. But over time, you, one may have to come to the realization that, hey, let's put aside the differences and do some things differently to actually benefit um, this cause. So for Mr. Edmund, for Governor Edmund Randolph, I should say, he didn't want to become the person who would be seen by others as the individual who ruined ratification approval for his state. Now, that's a smart move on his part. That's where he is putting um, the state of Virginia. He's putting our state of Virginia's well-being first before his uh, personal ambitions or let alone his personal ideological view. So it was in Philadelphia that Randolph, he introduced the Virginia plan, which supported a strong national government. He also opposed any attempts to conduct affairs that would lead to the dismantling of the Union. So therefore, like I said earlier, he put aside his own personal political ideological views or stances and by doing so, it uh, prevented him from doing something that, yes, would have backfired on him, but that most of all could have led to the dismantling of our nation. So he, but come convention time, he will go about going forward and supporting ratification, all in, all in the name of preserving and protecting the Union's well-being. And Edmund Randolph will not be afraid at all to take on Patrick Henry, Here's a question here. Given George Mason refused to sign the Constitution of Philadelphia, was he still willing to sign the document? Yes, as long as people's fundamental liberties and rights were adequately addressed. So in other words, here's George Mason with a bill of right, with a, with, um, a desire to have a bill of rights be put into play in the Constitution. Think about it. He wants to make sure that everyone's entitled to free speech the right to assemble and petition, the right to have freedom of religion without fear of being persecuted based on religious grounds. Uh, in other words, separation of church and state, uh, freedom of the press. Um, these are just some of the most uh, funda basic fundamental freedoms, but they are um, imperative. So basically for uh, George Mason, he, he wants to make sure that um, people's fundamental liberties and rights are adequately addressed and that nobody gets left behind. Bonus question here. Would George Mason's clause-by-clause -clause approach for debating Constitution stay intact? I wish I could say yes, but no. <laughs> and, the, and the primary reason for that is because of Patrick Henry's incessant accusations about the Constitution. In other words his unnecessary accusations, or let alone egregious, inappropriate. And yes, Patrick Henry is entitled to his opinions, but I think it's, it could be fair to say that over time that even those who are opposed are going to find that perhaps Patrick Henry has gone so overboard that he has lost his insanity and he is going to cause um, those who started out being opposed to change their minds.
that's what happens when people get caught up in the moment and they don't realize that w once they're caught up in the moment, they think they have all these supporters, but yet they might still retain some, but half of those supporters will leave to go to the other side where more opportunity is um, available for greater success. So Patrick Henry himself became convinced that the Articles of Confederation had won the Revolutionary War against England to rejecting all alternative option um, resolutions for improving the Constitution with amendments. I think it's fair to say that for Patrick Henry, any one of us could have been talking to him until we were blue in the face to say to him, hey, you're wrong. This, that's not the way to go. It's also like taking a horse out to water, out to a, um, a, like a lake or a stream, in the hopes that if the horse drinks the water, it will, it will make progress, it will see that the changes were necessary. <laughs> but, but just because you take a horse out to the water, it doesn't mean it's going to drink out of it. So there you have it. You could take Patrick Henry and show him all this stuff. It doesn't mean he's going to, he's going to listen to you. So um, bottom line is, is that Patrick Henry was never going to be convinced, really, or let alone be satisfied with anything. He was never going to be convinced that a majority of the states would agree to anything he was more concerned about those who opposed versus unification. I hate to say this, but Patrick Henry, with time during this convention, is going to be burning a lot of bridges. And when you burn bridges, your um, chances of reconciliation, your chances of um, winning people back into your um, into your uh, system of trust or system of um, networking become slimmer. So come June the 6th of 1788, James Madison will take the floor in advocating support of the Constitution. What is Madison's case for support based upon? Well, it's primarily based upon logic. In other words, proper logical and reasoning based off of his thorough studies, not only just of the Constitution itself, but his studies and how he has um, learned about past um, governments from other nations in the world that either succeeded or failed. And those that failed, for example, why did they fail and how could we, in the current state, not only become successful, but how we could avoid going down the same road as other failed, uh, as other countries had done that resulted in failure. So James Madison's uh, case for support, like I said, will be based upon logic instead of drama. He asked for delegates to not rely on emotions, but rather the facts presented before them. So it's like what John Adams said, folks, back in 1770 after the Boston Massacre trials. Remember this, emotions cannot override facts. So in other words, you can be emotional all you want, like Patrick Henry, but the facts before you 
cannot be overridden based off of your emotions. James Madison addressed to the delegates that he couldn't find any solid consistency with Patrick Henry's claims, especially making a case as to why the delegates were sent to Philadelphia all along. Remember, as I said earlier, Patrick Henry was convinced that the delegates who went to Philadelphia made things worse? Well, did anybody come to Patrick Henry's defense right now at this time? Absolutely not. Even those who are opposed to it don't have any proper um, show cause grounds or let alone proof to say, hey, Mr. Henry is right. Well, for one, Mr. Henry wasn't at the convention, and two, these other people who are right now in opposition weren't even there themselves. Madison also addressed issues of taxation, which did concern the Anti-Federalists, those who were skeptical of the Constitution. For James Madison, the taxation uh, process behind collecting taxes was essential to a government's well-being. How so, folks? Well, I can give you some examples. Well, for one, the ability to function, I mean, that, I mean how, for how can a government function in terms of uh, being able to operate if there's no revenue for it to even work with? So, okay, taxes would go towards maintaining an army along with internal improvements. You know, our roads are not the best. We've got to have better roads for... Uh, for horses and carriages to move around. We've also got to find ways to uh, better improve the ability to transport goods from point A to point B. So if you take George Washington, for example, who was the uh, who chaired the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, he would become an ardent supporter of canals. As a matter of fact, he might have been the first of his time to... Um, after the American Revolution to say, hey, we need to start expanding westward for uh, canal navigation purposes to have better ways of transporting goods uh, to western frontiers as well as to uh, western territories that we have um, re, um, that we've gotten um, we've gotten back um, from having lost in the aftermath of the French and Indian War that ended back in 1763. So, in other words, you know, we can't be relying on roads to transport goods all the time. We've got to find, we've got to be able to have a better system being canals. And then bridges, too, folks. You know, bridges are vital. You know, they, they can help um, get people from point A to point B, but they've also got to be able to link, um, provide uh, good linkage um, routes as well. So, think about it. Money's got to be funded for projects. It's, it, you know, money just doesn't grow on trees. It's got to come from somewhere. So for James Madison, you know, this was a good way to, to say to those who were skeptical, hey, look, I get that you have this fear of taxation, but under this new document, while, yes, Congress does have the, the national government does have the power to tax, we will also see to it that proper consent is given. In other words, 
That's why we are sending legislators to represent to represent the people. You know, the let you know the constituents can tell their legislators, hey, this is what we think of a tax proposal, but Congress will be the one to make the decision on whether or not to enact um, a tax uh, that is brought before them as a body to debate. And then, of course, uh, the president would have to be the one to um, to uh, sign um, the agreement or the act that Congress has brought before him to go into law, raising taxes by X amount of dollars over a certain period of time. That's just a good 101 explanation right there, but that's how it works, folks. You know, taxes, you know, the president alone can't say, I mean, he can go before Congress and say, hey, I request that um, that taxes either be cut or raised, but Congress has to debate it. And then once the debates are done and the, um, what do you call it, the amending process is done to where language is either omitted or um, added into uh, the amendments, and then once uh, bills are uh, consolidated and you have that one bill, then the president can sign it into law with uh, two-thirds majority to say, hey, this is what the, um, this is how much uh, the tax itself will go for, and this is whom it will be affecting, but this is where the tax will go for uh, raising revenue over X number of years. I'm not a I'm not a financial guru. Well, I'm not a financial guru, folks. I don't work in the Federal Reserve, but but based off of what my knowledge with government is, this is a good. This is the best logical explanation I can come up with. How many states uh, would be required to vote yes in support of ratifying the Constitution? The answer is nine. Now, true or false? Did Patrick Henry? ever once admit that there were failures behind the Articles of Confederation. If any of you all think he did admit that there were failures, um, something's not right. Uh, the answer is false. He remained very adamant with his views and allowing for the funding of federal and allowing for funding of federal government to be done so only upon approval from the states. As I said earlier, Patrick Henry thought it was okay for the states to um, to um, to disapprove, to just not have any total respect, or let alone to have to show disrespect towards this uh, federal government. You know how dare, in the eyes of the states, that the federal government be allowed to tell them what they are supposed to do? And you know what? If Patrick Henry had it his way, he might as well have been. He the scary part is he could have he could have taken it upon his own self to be uh, president but yet operate the country under the Articles of Confederation to where there would be nothing but uncivilized um, uh, unrest, let alone unrest, no proper civilization, uh, people at war all the time, states at war, uh, 13 states fighting over 13 different policies. Do you think that's the kind of government we would want to live under? I wouldn't. I would be out of my mind. But the reality is that there are people like Patrick Henry who would be okay, who probably would have been okay with that. Bonus question. Did Alexander Hamilton, 
who was the lone representative from New York who signed the Constitution, did, did his state face challenges similar to what Virginia faced per its state convention? The answer is yes. Hamilton saw a vast majority of New York delegates as being anti-federalist, but in the end, he would succeed in winning a resolution similar to Virginia's, where the Constitution itself got debated clause by clause. New York, like Virginia, was a very populated state. And New York, just like Virginia, these two states would have to turn to one another for proper guidance, with the ultimate objective being ratification of Constitution and I must point out, folks, that if one, state, if one of these two states failed to ratify the document, the other was doomed. So in other words, if Virginia didn't ratify the Constitution, then how could New York be assured of going on the right track to ensure ratification? So the bottom line is, is that these are make-it-or-break-it times. I mean, yes, even the smaller states could be just as vulnerable, but when you're talking about larger states like Virginia, New York, Pennsylvania, and even Massachusetts, there's a lot more at stake, especially with Virginia, considering that Virginia's territory goes all the way to present-day West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, parts of Kentucky, Tennessee, um, and as I mentioned from the previous night's podcast, uh, Virginia... Virginia's population alone is 14 times the size of Delaware. So the bottom line is, folks, is that so much is at stake here that, that there's really not a whole lot of time for playing around. And, of course, you've got people like Patrick Henry who, don't, who doesn't really give, he doesn't care what others think. But the bottom line is, is that we've got a deadline here to meet, folks. I mean, we, we just can't sit back and take our sweet time. We've got to be able to find. We've got to find common ground. We've got to be able to do to get this. We've got to be able to get this done right the first time. There's there are those yes who would like a second convention, but James Madison knows that if this if this fails, and there's a second convention, it could lead to nothing but anarchy. So these are uh, trying times, but somehow. With time, in a, with a short amount of time, we're going to get through this, but it's going to be all for the better. But it doesn't just happen overnight. Now, the next bonus question is the following. When Patrick Henry came to the floor to speak on June the 9th of 1788, whom would he go about accusing? When I reread this, it's you know I read this book three years ago, but... You know, I will admit that going back and rereading it has made it has made me appreciate all the more just what a big fool Patrick Henry made of himself. Even though this book primarily focuses on Madison and Monroe, but other founding uh, fathers were also um, playing a vital role in shaping the foundation of what our country would become. But if I had to pick one founding father who was the opposite, it's none other than Patrick Henry. But I just, I, I had to be reminded of just how big of a fool he had become. And I don't like to say that, but that's the reality right there. 
I almost hate to say this, but I do feel that Patrick Henry, we're all given grace, but he has fallen from grace. In other words, for all that he accomplished in the Revolutionary War years, and even before then, all of those accomplishments seem mediocre given that he is going off the deep end. So, as for whom he goes about accusing, Thomas Jefferson, who happens to be one of my favorite Virginians. But Thomas Jefferson, thank heavens, is not at the convention in large part because of what Patrick Henry does. Jefferson, for those of you who are wondering, where is he? He's in France. He's our ambassador. And uh, as for John Adams, of course, even though he's Massachusetts, he's ambassador to England. So Patrick Henry's accusation source or source of accusation stemmed from a letter dated from February 7th of 1788 by Jefferson himself to a fellow man named Alexander Donald. Now, even I'm trying to figure out how in the world did Patrick Henry get access to this letter? Well, even in 18th century times, people found ways to get access to stuff that, for one, did not belong to them, and two, it was not their business, but yet they were so desperate for attention that they would go to whatever extremes they could go to um, to get the attention if it also meant ruining someone else's character. Well, the accusation that Patrick Henry proceeds in, um, in going about smearing Thomas Jefferson had to do with this letter that he addressed to a Mr. Alexander Donald. Jefferson wanted nine states to ratify the Constitution, because nine is the magic number, but he wanted the other four states to hold out on purpose until a Bill of Rights was added. Now, do is it is it really safe to say that Jefferson would have wanted four states to have deliberately held out? You know, Jefferson may have wanted this at first, but over time his ideas and thoughts more than likely would have changed. We'll find that out here in a moment. But after this February letter, with time in a few short months, Jefferson would become an ardent supporter of the Constitution by favoring its ratification 100% through. But yet he still would advocate for a Bill of Rights and I think it's fair to say that a lot of the men present at the Virginia Convention wanted a Bill of Rights, even those outside of Virginia, most notably Elbridge Gerry of Massachusetts, wanted a Bill of Rights, and that was, one of, that was his primary reason for not signing. Jefferson also advocated term limits for the Senate and the presidency. Of course, as we all know, a president can serve no more than two terms, uh, I also know that Nathaniel Gorham of Massachusetts was the one that had proposed that all U.S. senators serve six-year terms. It doesn't mean that they um, are, are limited to just serving one six-year term, but that was to be their length for how long their term lasted until they were up for re-election.
But why is Patrick Henry wanting to smear Thomas Jefferson? Well, the use of his of Jefferson's personal letter really was seen as a desperate smear tactic on Henry's part to view Jefferson as someone who flat out rejected the Constitution. That's really what Jeff, what Patrick Henry was, was ultimately getting at. He wanted people to think that, okay, Jefferson wants nine states to ratify, but he wants the other four to hold out for as long as possible until a Bill of Rights gets put into play. Jefferson may have, Jefferson wanted the Bill of Rights, but he also knew that ratification of the Constitution had to take place as soon as possible in order for a more sound government to be efficient. But this is where Patrick Henry takes takes these unnecessary matters out of context. Sadly, a lot of people like to take things out of context even in today's time. And that's where unnecessary drama comes into play to where Resolution does not get achieved. Um, People's images can be ruined for all the wrong reasons. All in the name of um, vendetta. All in the name of um, revenge. All in the name of um, self-interest, self-ambition. Patrick Henry basically is living under that I, me, myself motto. He's not looking after the delegation as a whole. He's not looking after Virginia as a whole. He's only catering to those who not only oppose the document or let alone the Constitution itself, he's only looking after those who care about their own personal ambitions. It's a failed way of life. And Patrick Henry was already uh, just over the age of 50. So what does that tell you right there? That even as a full-grown man, he's still acting like a um, like a selfish um, individual who has not reached um, a proper um, level of maturity, or let alone he's not even showing that he is a true mature adult at this time. Patrick Henry became convinced that the president would rule like a dictator. The government would have no money limits for its own personal costs to not even providing, proving that it could raise revenue. I think it's almost fair to say that Patrick Henry would want the government, would want this new uh, proposed form of government to fail. And by doing so, it would give him all the more reasons to rejoice and say, hey, I like conflict. I like the fact that everybody else's proposals, everybody else's new ideas failed. But as for mine, it can still work even if it's fledgling. Well, where's James Monroe? I'm sure many of you are wondering, where is he? Did he fall off? Did he fall off the planet? Did he where is he? Is he still hiding? Is he in seclusion? No, he's not in seclusion. Matter of fact, he's even he's attending the ratification convention. On June the 10th of 1788. James Monroe goes before the floor and declares himself an anti-federalist. I will caution you all on this. James Monroe's political beliefs and views were nowhere in resemblance to Patrick Henry's. 
Now, to, to me, I see that as a huge sigh of relief. We must all remember, just because you're an anti-federalist, it doesn't mean that you are completely against the Constitution. It might not necessarily mean that you are in complete agreement with everything that Mr. Patrick Henry, or let alone a.k.a. the nutbag, has um, suggested about all the, in his eyes, all the wrongdoings behind the Constitution, but in my eyes, I know, are all for the right reasons, even if some of the uh, wording might be, uh, what do you call it, questionable to those who um, want to go forward, say like with, you know, the power of taxation, so forth, for example. But Patrick Henry, I mean, not Patrick Henry, <laughs> James Monroe, thank heavens, has political beliefs and views that are a little bit more mainstream compared to Patrick Henry's. Unlike Patrick Henry, James Monroe supports the idea of a national government controlling all national affairs. That's a sigh of relief right there, too. In other words, James Monroe doesn't believe that 13 states should have their own national policy affairs. James Monroe also believes that local interests should be given to the states. In other words, if it's a minor um, matter that the federal government probably should not be involved in, let the state handle it. And with the hopes that if worst case scenario, the locality itself cannot resolve it, it can go to a local court within the state's court system before it has to be escalated further up. James, James Monroe also believes that the federal government ought to have complete control over commerce. In other words, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, one of the powers is the a power or the ability to regulate all commerce. That is, um, national commerce going from uh, various uh, points up and down the United States, given at the time we're talking 13 states, as well as regulating in um, commerce that would be coming in from um, a foreign country into our country. So basically, we're dealing with not just one kind of commerce, folks. We're dealing with uh, interstate and intrastate commerce. Do any of you all know what interstate commerce is? Well, when you think of interstate, you know, think of the highways. In, in modern-day times, interstate highways. So interstate commerce is, say, in today's modern world, a shipment that could be going from uh, New York City to Chicago, Illinois. That's a form of interstate commerce there. Intrastate commerce is commerce moving from one part of a state to another. So in other words, I live in Virginia. I work in the transportation industry, so I already know, for example, if a shipment is going from Richmond, Virginia to Roanoke, Virginia, that's interstate commerce because it's commerce that is moving from point A to point B in Virginia. But James Monroe's uh, ideas for national government, um, the national government's ability to, say, control national affairs to having complete control over commerce, to me, are very sound and idealistic. On the other hand, though, did James Monroe view the power of taxing as a threat to uh, personal liberty? He did. Well, how so? Well, James Monroe was very worried 
about a lack of boundary or let alone boundaries between the federal and state governments and their powers to tax. He didn't want a double taxation taking place. In other words, he didn't want, it wasn't so much, okay, the federal government's taxing the states back-to-back times. He didn't want to see the federal and state governments accidentally impose taxes at the same time that were for the same purposes. Okay, there are federal taxes that we pay that go to the federal government. There are also state taxes that we pay based upon the state, obviously for one, that the state we live in, but the state taxes that go directly to the state. So in other words, for James Monroe, he wanted there, he wanted a, a much broader definition of what constituted a federal tax and what constituted state taxes. In other words, he wanted to make sure that that both the federal and the state governments were not overstepping their boundaries on an individual basis, but on, but were not violating one another's uh, jurisdiction. Basically, he did not want to see the states become trampled to where they had no voice. In other words, the state states do have a right to say, "Hey, is this." Prop, is, this, is this particular tax by the federal government a proper, um, a proper form of, uh, what do you call it, uh, representation with consent, or was it a tax that was imposed upon us, say, without consent or without um, proper um, introduction by uh, the national government? In other words, James Monroe is hoping that with taxation itself that there is a proper um, chain of uh, command where one level of um, government is not overpowering the other. Think of it as a check and balance system. James Monroe remained very adamant in putting forth the Bill of Rights into the Constitution to ensure the protection of liberties deemed essential as well as checks and balances, as I mentioned a moment ago, regarding general powers to the government. And yes, uh, James Monroe is just a handful of many other, um, not just prominent Virginians, but people, um, other prominent politicians from other states who, who are very, um, who, let alone I should say, who, who are just very um, concerned that What's going to happen if the Constitution does not add a Bill of Rights? Will it survive? Will people's rights be um, ensured? Um, will people's rights be protected? You know, it's one thing to um, be accused of a crime. It's another thing to make sure that you have the right to a fair trial. So think about it. For James Monroe, being a lawyer, he wants to make sure that, okay, if, if someone is accused of a crime, that they have the right to a fair and speedy trial, that they also have the right to have counsel given to them. So without that right, then how can one be proven innocent and how can one be considered innocent until proven guilty? I also found it interesting that for James Monroe, he truly believed that the popular vote when it came to presidential elections, 
was the primary way to go versus relying on the Electoral College, which he saw as a system that was vulnerable to corruption. Well, I tell you this, folks, we're still having this debate in today's time with the